from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to this Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator and the host of this podcast, Ask the CER, where we ask you, our listeners, to write in with questions you would like answered on EU policy and issues affecting Europe, the UK and the world, and where our researchers will do their best to give their views on those subjects. Thank you to everyone who has written in so far. We've received a good mix of questions, which will hopefully make for an interesting episode. We're going to be looking at what the EU is doing in the way of climate action and how it's trying to minimise the inequalities resulting from its policies, how the EU's post-pandemic recovery fund is being dispersed and relations between Europe and the United States. Fortunately, I have just the lineup to help shed some light on these areas. With me today are the CER's Foreign Policy Director, Ian Bond, our Deputy Director, John Springford, and Research Fellow, Elisabetta Cornago. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Rosie. Hi, thank you for having us. For those of you who haven't listened to our podcast before, Elisabetta is our resident climate expert. Let's turn to you first, Elisabetta. So it's been a busy few months for the EU in terms of climate. Its delegation is attending the UN's Climate Change Summit in Glasgow, COP26, which is in its second and final week. Plus, in July, it released a package of measures, including boosting renewables, reforming and expanding the emissions trading scheme, creating a carbon border adjustment mechanism and tightening emission standards in a bid to cut net greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. These so-called Fit the 55 measures form part of what's known as the European Green Deal, the EU's umbrella plan for moving to a more sustainable and ecological model. But given that member states have different socioeconomic landscapes and, say, varying dependence on fossil fuels, it's near on impossible for the bloc to move ahead uniformly on this transition. On this subject, Katerina from Frankfurt wrote in asking, how can the EU prevent political and social division as a result of the European Green Deal, as some countries want and are able to move forward more ambitiously? How can the Green Deal be preserved? Thank you, Rosie, and uh, thanks to Katharina for this very interesting, uh, very challenging question, really. Um, so as you said, Rosie, the, the Green Deal, the European Green Deal covers a lot of ground indeed. So not only climate action, but also uh, the protection of biodiversity and ecosystems, the reduction of pollution in air, water and soil, you know, the transition to a circular economy. There is really a lot uh, going on in there. So. Uh, perhaps to zoom in on, on, on something that's very much in the news these days, as you mentioned, we are uh, in, in the final week of COP26. Let me focus on climate action for now. Um, so what we know is that the EU has uh, recently approved climate action targets, which aim to cut its greenhouse gas emissions, as you said, by 55% by, by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Now, part of the emission reduction is achieved jointly EU-wide. Uh, in sectors which are covered by the EU emissions trading scheme, so electricity and heavy industry. But it's true that for other sectors, um, we do see national level targets. So sectors such as buildings, road transport, uh, small industry and, and agriculture. Uh, so how are these national level targets calculated to keep it 
both realistic, uh, but at the same time ambitious and, and just, sort of justly dividing the burden across EU member states, they are in fact calculating according to member states' GDP uh, per capita. So what this means then is that um, individual member states need to meet at least uh, that emission reduction goal. Uh, and same goes in fact for the deployment of renewables, energy efficient improvements, and a lot of other additional sort of numerical targets, if you so wish, that are included in, in, in the Green Deal, but they can push forward if they so wish. But I think what's, what's tricky and, and interesting and, and challenging is that what we, where we do see divisions is not really on overall EU-wide goals, which are now written into law, the, the European uh, climate law, uh, but on the policies to put in place to meet these goals. And this is where the Fit for 55 package, which was tabled over summer by the European Commission, comes in. So right now, Fit for 55 is still a set of proposals, right? which need to be discussed, possibly amended, and then approved by both the European Parliament and by the Council, so EU member states. How can this part of the Green Deal be preserved, as Katerina asks? So this is really the tricky part, um, as you said. So I guess getting the package beyond the line, getting it to final approval, because we're talking about a massive set of policy proposals, a complex one. You mentioned that it, it embeds everything from targets on renewables, energy efficiency, vehicle emission standards. And of course, there are disagreements on, on certain policies. Now, the centerpiece, I would say, of the Fit for 55 package is the European Emissions Trading Scheme. And on that, um, which, which is about essentially putting a cap on emissions, uh, which, which come from heavy industry and electricity, gradually reducing this cap so that we meet the carbonization goals and allowing uh, parties subject to this cap to trade uh, essentially carbon emission allowances and, and associated price to that. Some countries are very much pro this sort of market approach to, to emissions reductions. Uh, Germany is one. In fact, Germany is such a strong supporter of the ETS system that it has, in fact, pioneered the extension of the system to more sectors. And it is, I think, one of the trickiest bits of the 55 package, expanding carbon pricing to cover all transport and building heating. Eastern European countries, on the other hand, are not keen at all, really, to, to expand uh, emissions tradings and, and carbon pricing to more sectors, particularly because their energy mix tends to be more carbon intensive, more reliant on coal, for example, and their buildings and cars are less energy efficient uh, than in Western Europe. So I guess ultimately the way to solve the puzzle and, and move towards an approval of the package as a whole uh, will boil down to compromises, yes, but to financial transfers, I think, to make sure that these targets are feasible, right? They shouldn't be perceived as a, as a punishment, uh, as, as something imposed by Brussels. The climate the emissions reduction goals have now been approved. Now it's a matter of finding a way that works for, for all to get there. As I said, you know, the UETS is the centerpiece of this package, but it's also, I would say, the, an opportunity in terms of financing efforts for, for the energy transition because it generates uh, revenues through the auctioning of carbon emission allowances. And with these revenues, you can do a lot of things. And in fact, there are proposals embedded in the package to, to make good use, in fact, and to use these revenues in a way that facilitates meeting climate action goals. Uh, there is a modernization fund to support particularly Central and Eastern European countries to modernize the energy infrastructure and, and energy sector, an innovation fund to support businesses uh, in, in decarbonization efforts, a social fund, which is going to be a new effort to support vulnerable households, but also um, smaller uh, businesses and, and, and vulnerable transport users, 
as they will probably start to be exposed to carbon prices if a new ETS is created to cover uh, building and, and transport emissions, as well as a just transition fund, which aims to support the diversification of those regions whose economies rely the most on fossil fuels. Think, for example, of mining regions. So these are a lot of, let's say, fancy sounding, I guess, uh, funding opportunities, but they ultimately aim to shift money around the union to help uh, those um, member states, those social categories and those regions that need it the most in and then that face, I guess, the, the larger cost, proportionally larger cost, and they need to make the larger efforts in, in meeting uh, the, the energy transition goals. And, and it's also about, I think, making the, the transition just both within and, and across member states. Okay, thank you, Elisabetta. That really clears that one up. Um, following on from that, Paul from near Brussels said he would like to learn how Fit for 55 might impact the Central and Eastern EU member states, given that their situation seems to differ significantly from other EU member states. I know you touched on this briefly um, just now, but what are the climate peculiarities that he's referring to for these countries? Yes, another very interesting question. Um, and, and you're right. So I just briefly mentioned that there is something particular about uh, Central and Eastern European countries, and it comes down to their energy mix, really. So if we look at the carbon footprint, so the greenhouse gas emissions per capita, that is lower than the U27 average in most Central and, and Eastern EU member states, with the exception of a few, uh, Czechia, Estonia, and Poland. So lower carbon footprint in general in Central and Eastern Europe with respect to the EU average. However, what's, what's peculiar is that uh, Central and Eastern European member states do rely a lot uh, more on what's called solid fossil fuels, so essentially coal, in their energy mix. Um, at EU level, coal does not even make up for about 3% of total uh, final energy consumption, but in Poland, for example, that's 13%. So that's a large slice of, of the energy mix used uh, you know, both directly for heating and in electricity generation. So what this tells us is that the energy mix uh, in this area of the union is more carbon intensive, and that makes these countries then more vulnerable to the implications of expanding the carbon pricing approach to meet our joint union-wide climate action goals. And so this means that unless uh, Central and Eastern European countries start or accelerate rather uh, the decarbonization of their electricity generation, reduce the reliance on coal as well as natural gas, they will feel the increasing burden of uh, carbon prices as we go forward. In fact, what we've seen is that carbon prices uh, linked to the ETS have already gone from about 30 to 60 euros per ton of carbon since early 2021. Um, and this is likely to continue increasing as we move to, towards net zero. And so that's a problem, as I said, for, for this region, because while um, if you look, for example, at Slovakia, Hungary, or Poland, electricity retail prices, both for industry and for households really, are lower than the, the EU average. However, energy poverty really is a much larger problem uh, in this area of the EU. In 2018, for example, the European poorest households spent around 8% of their total budget, of their total expenditure on energy, but this was up to 15 or, or over 20% in, in some uh, Central and Eastern uh, European countries. So energy poverty is really a crucial issue. And that is why these countries are so concerned about exposing directly households to uh, the, the, the direct burden of carbon prices. So as I said, and this kind of connects back to, to, to the previous question, really, I think the way forward to 
help ultimately these, these countries if, if we think that then the, the creation of, a, of an additional emission trading scheme is the way to meet our goals, is to help them shoulder this burden, particularly for the most vulnerable houses in these areas, through a, a good, a, a meaningful and intelligent use of the revenues that, that come from it. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Elisabetta. John, I'll bring you in for this next question, as I know you and Elisabetta are working on a paper about the recovery fund at the moment, which you can both shamelessly plug. Um, this question's about the impact of the EU's recovery fund, which is the 750 billion euro stimulus package to help get Europe back on its feet following the COVID pandemic. The recovery and resilience facility makes up 90% of this package, and member states have had to submit plans to unlock the funding, meeting certain criteria for how they will spend it. David from London has written in saying that the recovery funds approved by the European Commission are being directed to green, almost 40%, and digital, around 20% uses within member states. He asked, what are these projects? Well, thanks, Rosie. Uh, in terms of the shameless plug, we've done a magnum opus on the recovery fund, um, which I think is a fairly comprehensive look at what the fund is, what we should do about it, some recommendations for the future. Do take a look. I, I suspect it will be out by next week. Um, our view is broadly positive of the recovery fund. It's going to raise growth rates by about 0.7% a year across the EU in 2022 and 2023. That's helpful in terms of the recovery. Um, we're broadly positive about the way that the money is being dispersed. 40% climate mitigation and adaptation sensible, you know, a sensibly large proportion of the, the money. Um, although because the recovery fund itself is not huge, then the impact on emissions won't be an absolute game changer. And the French government has estimated that France's plans for spending the money will reduce emissions by about 1% by 2030. So, you know, good to have, but not an absolute game changer. And the and the key recommendation that we put together in our paper uh, is that the recovery fund should continue after 2026 when, when its schedule is finished. And it should be much bigger, or at least the climate part of it should be much bigger. The current recovery fund is going to spend about 45 billion a year across the six years on climate. Um, uh, but we know that 460 billion of public sector investment in total is going to be needed on climate annually. Um, so in order to, to really move the dial, the climate portion of the fund should, should we think, go up to about 230 billion or so. So a really big, big increase. In terms of the spending on digital, we're a bit less sure about, but I'll, I'll come on to that. So the, the question from David was, what are the projects that member states are choosing? Um, and there are some which are consistent across member states and some which are a bit different. So pretty much all of them are saying, let's improve energy efficiency in buildings, both governments and households. All of them are saying, let's improve electric car infrastructure. Um, some of the poorer member states, uh, they need to get their renewable generation going. So they're providing more subsidies to renewables, whereas some of the richer member states have already kind of got to that point where renewables don't need that much subsidy. So that's not such a big part of Western European plans. Uh, and then Germany, France and Portugal are all, all providing a fair amount of support for development of hydrogen. The idea behind hydrogen is that it can be an alternative for trucks and planes, um, which are quite hard to electrify. Um, 
the problem with hydrogen is that it takes a lot of electricity to make it. Uh, and the hope is that you can link it up to renewables or maybe to nuclear power and therefore make it that way, but it's always going to be quite expensive. And batteries are improving quite rapidly. So it may end up being risky to bet a lot of taxpayers' money on hydrogen. So that's something to, to watch out for. Um, the digital spending, as I said, we're a bit less sure about. Um, there's some areas of spending which are quite problematic. For background, the EU is pretty worried that it's far behind the US and Asia on digital technology. There's a bit of protectionism coming in. We need EU champions in the tech space. And they also think spending a lot on digital might help improve productivity growth, which has been terrible for a decade. In terms of the spending on digital itself, there are three buckets, really. One is, as I mentioned, rivals to US and Asian companies. So there's going to be some subsidy for advanced chip manufacturing, for cloud computing. Um, but the problem with this is that uh, Asia and US companies are already pretty dominant. So... And, the, and Asia and the US are also subsidizing chip manufacturing, particularly in the newest types of nano, small nanometer chips. Um, so that, that's something that, that might be quite a risky bet for the EU to spend a lot of money on, or at least the member states. The second bucket uh, is more sensible, I think, which is spending a lot of money on early stage research projects in quantum and artificial intelligence, for example. This is the classical role for the government is to subsidised science and the development of new ideas, which might then turn into big new companies, rather than subsidising rivals to pre-existing companies. And the other good thing that this will do is develop skills in advanced digital technology, which the EU has relatively few of compared to the United States and some countries in Asia. The third bucket is uh, digitise the public sector. We also think that's pretty sensible it's really useful for citizens to be able to use the web to get access to public services um, and digital technology can also improve the responsiveness of public services to what people want. Um, so overall, I think we're pretty positive about it and reasonably positive about what the money is being spent on. Um, the only issue is that the digital side of things, there are some more risky bets which are being made by member states. Okay, thank you, John, for delving into the nitty gritty of those projects and outlining them. Um, so project wise, how exactly are they chosen? And how does the EU as a collective make sure that member states actually pick projects that will improve growth or reduce emissions? The way that the process works is that member states come up with plans on how they're going to spend the money. The European Commission then signs them off. The Commission signed off pretty much everybody's plans apart from Hungary and Poland so far because um, that got caught up in some of the rule of law issues. You know, as mentioned, the plans have to have about 40% of spending on climate and 20% on digital if they're going to get through the Commission. But they also have to fit with the recommendations that have been made through the European semester, which is the Commission system of reviewing member states' economic policies. Um, and it's important to remember that the recovery fund process is not only about money, it's also about reforms. Um, and in their plans, member states have to put forward reforms that they want to enact in order to help investments raise growth and improve social cohesion. So, for example, Italy is going to improve bankruptcy proceedings and try and speed civil suits through the courts. 
they're notoriously slow. Um, Romania is going to improve its VAT tax collection to try and reduce fraud and improve revenue. And then Spain is trying to reduce the number of young people and women on temporary contracts, which is a big issue in their labour market. Overall, the recovery fund system of governance is a lot better than the EU's traditional budget. Um, and there are lots of milestones that member states have to go through after they have their plans approved um, and they've received some money then they have to make some reforms and investments, go back to the commission, say, we've done this. The commission then says, okay, you have, and then more money is dispersed. By contrast, the EU's mechanisms for stopping money flowing, if money is being spent poorly, are, are much more restricted. So I think this should mean that the recovery fund will be more effective at ensuring investment improves growth um, and also the welfare of European citizens. And doesn't just end up in the pocket of big landowners and developers, which is part of the problem with the EU budget. To conclude, that's one of our recommendations for uh, the recovery fund in our forthcoming paper is that the recovery fund's better system of governance could be applied to uh, the majority of the EU budget, principally the common agricultural policy and the structural funds for poorer regions to ensure that money is spent more effectively. That's great. Thank you, John, and look forward to reading your and Elizabeth's paper. Um, so now we know a bit more about how the recovery fund could make Europe a bigger player in terms of climate action, technology, research and innovation. Let's look at competition issues, well, a competition issue within the EU at the moment, which is natural gas. So I will come to you, Ian. We know that Russia and its energy company Gazprom have completed the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which connects Russian gas to Germany underneath the Baltic Sea, bypassing the traditional energy transit routes through Eastern Europe. Germany's regulator has until January to assess whether Nord Stream complies with the EU's rules on competition, which don't allow natural gas producers to own pipelines that transport supplies to customers. Germany will then hand the case over to the Commission for review. But concerns aren't just limited to competition, as Poland, Belarus and Ukraine have all expressed fears for their economies and or security, and Europe and its allies are worried about such an increase in Russia's geopolitical leverage. Donald Trump previously sanctioned the companies involved in a move to halt the construction of the pipeline, but President Biden then rolled those sanctions back. Paul near Brussels said that he's been struggling to understand the reasoning of President Biden when he reached an understanding with Angela Merkel when she visited Washington with regards to the pipeline. He asked, why did Biden conclude this deal when it is clear that it is a free gift to Putin? Well, Paul's not the only one who's asking this question, and you should certainly never give free gifts to Putin. Um, I mean, just to expand on your introduction by way of background, up to now, most Russian gas has reached Europe via pipelines that go through Ukraine and which also supply Ukraine itself. Uh, and as you said, the Russian state-owned gas company Gazprom has been building pipelines under the Baltic Sea direct to Germany. The first of those started operating in 2011. Uh, the second one, Nord Stream 2, has just been completed. Uh, it isn't yet operating. But those two pipelines, plus another one that goes under the Black Sea called Turk Stream, would enable Russia, if it chose to, to turn off Ukraine's gas supply completely. Uh, 
And you've got to remember that Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine and invaded the eastern part of the country in 2014, but it's still been obliged to pay Ukraine, uh, depending on gas prices and gas flows, something between $2 billion and $3 billion a year in transit fees. And it would clearly love to stop doing that. Now, in 2017, the US Congress started imposing sanctions on companies involved in Nord Stream 2. The problem with that is that a lot of those were EU companies, and the EU is not a fan of US sanctions that affect foreign rather than US firms, so-called extraterritorial sanctions. So transatlantic relations under Donald Trump weren't that great anyway, and this became another irritant. Joe Biden came into office wanting to rebuild relations with his European allies, and that meant removing some of these irritants. Uh, now, by the time he did the deal with Angela Merkel over Gazprom and, and the sanctions, the pipeline was almost finished anyway. So he did decide to do the Germans a, a favor, but in return, they're supposed to press Russia to keep pumping gas via Ukraine, even after Nord Stream 2 is operating. And Berlin is also supposed to help the Ukrainians become less dependent on Russian gas. So, I mean, I understand Biden's choice. Nord Stream 2 probably couldn't have been stopped by the, the point at which he and Angela Merkel were speaking. But what I'm waiting to see now is whether Germany lives up to the commitments that it made to Biden uh, and whether it will, in fact, put pressure on Russia not to cut off Ukraine. So, you know, my focus really at the moment is not so much on Biden as on the Germans. Uh, they could have stopped this project at a much earlier stage anyway. And it's really only going to be a free gift to Putin if the Germans now wash their hands of Ukraine and their obligations to it. OK, thank you very much. So it would be fair to say that Germany is the last line of defence right now before yeah. the commission. Yeah, um, that's it. And zooming out the focus a little bit, Marcel from London asked, are transatlantic relations better off under this democratic administration? in the US. What do you think? Perhaps you could touch on both the EU and the UK. Yeah, I mean, the short answer to the question is yes, um, the relationship is better. Uh, the longer answer is that Donald Trump's view of the world was that America's allies were a burden. They were all out in his view to rip off the, the US. He had an unhealthy admiration for, for Vladimir Putin and an irrational dislike of Angela Merkel, and a total lack of understanding of the, the EU. So almost anything was going to be an improvement on that. Biden knows Europe well. He believes that the US benefits from having allies, and he's a Putin skeptic. But that doesn't mean that relations are going to be completely straightforward. For one thing, Europe is not Biden's top priority. He faces huge domestic challenges. I mean, he's just got this landmark um, infrastructure bill through the, um, through the US Congress, but he's got a lot more work to do to get some of his domestic priorities moving. Um, and so foreign policy has to take a bit of a back seat. 
And within the foreign policy sphere, he's much more concerned about the rise of China and what he's going to do in the Indo-Pacific region than he is about Russia, which I think he probably um, thinks is a, is a declining but disruptive power in, in Europe. And we've already seen with the withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan and with the announcement of the AUKUS agreement, that's the agreement between the UK and Australia and the US, which has deprived France of a big contract to supply submarines to Australia, um, that this, this administration, like many of its US predecessors, sometimes shoots first and asks questions afterwards. Now, on the positive side, there is progress in the EU-US relationship. There are some trade issues left over from the Trump era that are being sorted out. Uh, there is some cooperation between the US and the EU on policy towards China. All of that's to the good. When it comes to the UK, uh, I'd say that most of Whitehall was relieved that Biden won. Uh, Trump was pretty unpredictable, even though he had some warm feelings to the towards the UK, the things that he did were not always beneficial to us. But Biden is not a fan of Brexit. And he takes an almost proprietorial interest in Northern Ireland and its peace process. And that could make for some quite uncomfortable conversations between the White House and 10 Downing Street, if the UK tries to wriggle out of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and if relations between the, the EU, which I think Biden, broadly speaking, has quite warm feelings about, um, and the UK take a turn for the worse. So, I mean, on balance, yeah, the relationship is much better, but that doesn't mean to say that everything is completely 100% rosy, if you'll forgive the expression. Um, and, uh, you know, there is still some, some distance to travel for um, transatlantic relations to get back on a completely even keel. Thank you very much. You've all cleared a lot of things up and provided some really insightful answers. Uh, this has been the second Ask CER podcast. We will be back in six weeks' time, so please do keep your questions coming. If we haven't answered one that you've already written in with, don't be disheartened. We're not just discarding them as they come in. We will, we will come to it in due course. Um, we hope you've enjoyed listening and see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.